Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Becoming your strongest financial self? Good plan. Northwestern Mutual's Guide to Good Financial Planning can help you balance spending and saving, set goals, and start creating the life you want to be living. Get it today at northwesternmutual.com slash goodplan. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. I'm here with Jim Manos Jr., uh, creator of Dexter. You wrote and produced the first episode of, of one of my favorite shows, Dexter. You also were a co-producer on The Sopranos and I wrote. Con- what is- I was the consulting producer on The Sopranos. Consulting producer on The Sopranos, but you did write one of the best episodes ever, not just of The Sopranos, but of all time. I remember it well: the college episode when Tony Soprano takes Meadow up to college and at the same time um, essentially does his first uh, by his own hands killing. So I want to ask you about that uh, later. But, um, you know, first, uh, thank you for coming on the show. I'm really glad you're here. And thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. And so so I have kind of a, a bigger question to ask about these shows and kind of the genre of shows that sort of started with The Sopranos, which is you know, it seems like the best shows these days, Mad Men, Breaking Bad, Sopranos, Dexter, The Shield, which you also uh, were a producer on. Uh, these shows all celebrate the anti-hero, not even the non-hero. Like, I, let's say non, let's say Seinfeld's like non-heroes, but the anti-hero is someone you wouldn't want to have in your living room. And yet everybody became obsessed with having all of these characters in their living room every week. Uh, what do you think changed in our culture or society that sort of switched this, you know, that sort of created this massive genre of television that became the best genre of television? Well, I'm not really sure. I mean, I'm no sociologist. I, I just come up with stories. I, I'm, I I'm accusing you of being a sociologist, though. Yes, you, you are accusing me of being a sociologist. Okay, I've been accused of far, far worse. <laughs> um, I would, if I had to go out on a limb and venture to say this, I think the world changed after 9-11. And I think people started looking at the world and, and reality in a very different kind of way. And I think, you know, the antiheroes, how you choose to call them, or I would just say a much more realistic version of what we're all capable of doing and what we're all capable of being like um, became we there was a much more honest approach about everything and I think that really is what it's all about it's not so much so that they are truly horrible horrible people they all all those characters that you just suggested you know everybody from Tony Soprano to Vic Mackey to um, you know the the lead on Breaking Bad you know they also have some incredible virtues you know that go that go along with them and they're not just evil. They're not one-dimensional. They're multi-dimensional. And I think that's been the big change. 9-11 was a very complicated thing that impacted this country. And people are still, you know, trying to figure it all out. And um, I think that has something to do with it. But, again, I'm no sociologist, and that's just my dime store psychology on it. 
but but let's take an episode like College, which you wrote, which uh, appeared in I, I think it was early 1999, and you have this contradiction where it's the tr- very classic traditional father takes daughter to look at colleges, and in parallel with that. He sees uh, a, a mob member who was an FBI informant, I guess, and he decides to to kill this guy. So there's this weird contradiction. This is before 9-11, and you're sort of suggesting that inside all of us there's this contradiction, and we kind of allow ourselves to let it come out by, by watching these shows. And again, this is a pre-9-11 thing, so I'm wondering if it's yeah, something you know, that's I always run through us. I forgot that that was pre-9-11, but I, I think your previous statement to that is absolutely true, that we are all capable of that duality. I, I think that is true. And, you know, you take a look even like at, at Don Draper, you can't you, he's not like a killer, say, like uh, Frank Underwood in House of Cards or Tony Soprano or whatever. But still, he's not necessarily the nicest guy in the world. And yet people almost want to relate to him. People want to relate to Tony Soprano. They want to feel like Tony Soprano even. And I think that escapism, you know, on the, in this genre allows them to do that. Um, but well, it didn't it's always exist been escapism. Even it's always been escapism. Even when you go back to the Andy yeah. Griffith show, you know, people wanted to feel like they could all live in a small town, and they all enjoyed that too. So there's always been escapism. I mean, I think you know what happened with the college episode, and I completely forgot it's been such a long time. Um, that you know, when Dave Chase created that show, and he deserves all the credit because he was absolutely brilliant, and I think really intensely ferocious about believing in it because that's that story had been i believe in turnaround for five or six years before you know he convinced hbo to go forward and i didn't know god that he, and thank god he did yeah well you know if you believe in something in this in show business it takes a long long time and um i think you know to his credit he came up with this character that everybody could identify with you know being caught between his professional and personal life, no matter how negative one may perceive the, you know, his professional life. Um, I think nobody at that time knew what we were doing. None of us were aware or, or conscious of creating something that became truly iconic. I mean, all we had at that time was the pilot that hadn't even been aired yet publicly. So we were just coming up with stories, and that just happened to be one of them. None of us knew that, wow, the college episode is the one episode where you have the lead character who actively kills somebody, not out of self-defense, but but offensively. You know, he 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 made a conscious decision to do it, and nobody had ever done that before. Trust me when I say this to you. We never thought about that when we were writing it. It just seemed natural and organic to the character. Well, it's interesting because um, you know Michael Imperioli, the um, uh, Christopher, he offers to come up. The, you know, Tony's talking to him on the phone. He offers to come up there and kill the guy himself, and Tony's like, "No, I'll take care of it." So you did make the conscious decision that this main character, that audiences were starting to grow to love. Like, it was, and it's only in the first season, but we were we were all starting to love him already. Uh, he was going to kill someone. And that was a big risk on TV. Like, can you imagine Richie Cunningham strangling someone risk. to death? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but that was a huge risk, and the credit has to go to Chase for that, for making that risk. You know, and yes, it was obviously a conscious decision to not allow Moltisanti to go up there to do the killing for him, but it wasn't a conscious decision knowing that we were going to do something historic. Yeah, it's interesting because 
The Sopranos itself, again, you say it was kind of in a waiting period for five years. I'm thinking what HBO had during those five years beforehand. And and No, just- I don't think it was set up at HBO. I think it was set up at other networks, and Dave kept persisting and kept trying to find a home for it, and HBO was smart enough to grab it. It's interesting because HBO seems to be like the grandfather of all these shows. Like you take a look at a show like – Dexter, which you worked on, of course, uh, you know, Michael Hall worked at Six Feet Under on HBO. And then even The Shield, there's there's the there's you who worked uh, with HBO. And there's also Peter Liguori from who was running FX, who was I think he was head of sports at HBO for a while or head yeah, of sports I marketing. Miss, I actually miss working with Peter Liguori. I thought he was absolutely brilliant and one of the nicer men I've ever met. Um yeah, I, I, I would love to be able to. I know he's over at WGN now, and I would love to be able to work with him again. He was a truly aces guy. And again, all this seems to like stem from HBO. So what do you think is it about HBO's original kind of either management or ethic or whatever that allowed this new burst of creativity to come onto our television screens? I, I think what I've learned over the years is that the best shows happen when – the executives and the studios and the networks are behind the original creators and they allow them and trust them to do what the original creator wants to do. And I think by far and away that could probably be proven if you were to ask each and every successful showrunner of the shows that really have made an impact on this world. I would venture to say that the majority of them would say that they've been left alone. So, and, and you think it be, could be related to the fact that, like, take a guy like uh, Chris Albrecht, who was the CEO, I guess, when The Sopranos started, or maybe it was transitioning still between Jeff Bukas and Chris Albrecht. But Chris Albrecht came from the entertainment industry. Like, the guy started out as a stand-up comic. So he sort of had the aesthetic of an entertainer as well as being an executive. Do you think that helped? Um, I think, you know, I, I guess so. I mean, I started off studying acting and never intending to be an actor. And that, because I had, my goal was just to direct plays, which is what I did for about eight, nine years or so in New York City. And I just thought studying acting would make me a better play director. And that ultimately, in the big picture, ultimately made me, I believe, a better writer. Because I understood how actors go ahead and read scripts and how they speak and how they talk and what they're looking for. So all any kind of previous experience, I'm a huge fan of if, if you're successful at it. The one thing that I've also realized is that I've naturally gravitated toward working with people who have had a pre- previous success in their life, whether it was in showbiz or not, but they were successful at one point in their lives before, if, if in fact they made a career change and went into showbiz. Those people, for some reason, once you taste it, you want it again, and you, you, you have a certain drive that is kind of, you know, unstoppable, really. I, I think I heard this quote, and either Harold Ramis said it or someone said it about Harold Ramis, that kind of a, a good way to live is to find the smartest guy in the room and to stand next to him. So Harold Ramis <laughs> stood, next, stood next to Bill Murray. And, of course, that led to uh, amazing success with, I guess, Stripes and Ghostbusters and so on. Who, who do you feel like you stood next to uh, to achieve success? You know, I've been really fortunate. I've, I've gotten to work with some people who've truly been great mentors to me. And I, I think the better quote that I've heard, and it's a quote that, that I would abide by, was I believe Warren Beatty said that the true definition of success is when you cannot define the difference between work and pleasure. And if you truly enjoy what you're doing, then you will be good at it. And if you don't see it as work or as something as an obligation and you just thoroughly enjoy it, then you'll be good at it. Well, let me ask you this. When were there times 
when you didn't enjoy what you were doing and you either stuck with it or you made a change? I think we all learn pretty quickly that life is short and that if you're going to work on a show and you are going to be compelled to work with people 16, 18, 20 hours a day, you better like those people. If you don't, again, life is too short. It's not worth it. Yeah, but I think I've learned that many, many, many years ago when I was doing plays because I realized while I was directing that play, I was inhabiting a world. I was secure in that world. The doors were closed and I was working with people I wanted to work with. I full knew after eight hours of rehearsal or whatever it was that I was going to have to leave the confines and the safety of that world and experience the real world. So I figured you might as well, if you're creating a world in the world of theater, then you might as well work with the people that you like because you know in a, in a few hours you've got to deal with the reality. So it's funny. On the one hand, there's this commonality between theater and TV shows, which is you you create a world, you inhabit that world with characters, you give them emotions and stories, and then you 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 let it run. But of course, there's a big difference in the between the business of theater and the business of Hollywood. How did you decide, and then how did you make the jump from theater to Hollywood? Because I feel you're you're very fortunate in that way as well. I- I've been really lucky. I, I managed to get the rights to a story that, um, and again, I didn't know this was a big deal at the time, but and I guess it was 92 or 93 going back that long. Jeez. I got this, I <laughs> 20 got the years. It goes a long time. Oh it's a long God, time. Yeah. Jeez. Um, yeah. Um, I, I got the rights to the Texas cheerleader story that was going on in Houston at the time, and that was all about a, a woman that um, wanted to kill her next-door neighbor because their two daughters were competing for one spot on the cheerleading yeah. team. I remember and, that story. Yeah, well, it turned out to be a great movie, and, you know, Holly Hunter, I believe, won the Emmy for that, and Bo Bridges, and that was one of the most magical moments in my life because it all happened so very quickly, and I was just directing plays, managed to get the rights. I went to, I went to Houston, convinced everybody to give me the rights. I remember... You know, selling the story and then being fortunate enough to work with Jane Anderson and Michael Ritchie and everybody else that 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 ultimately wrote and directed that, and I was all of a sudden the Hollywood producer. That's how crazy that is. Now, what do you mean you you got the rights? Like, so you went down there. Who did you have to talk to to get the rights? Like every character involved. You had to talk to every one of them. I had to talk to every one of them. That in itself was a movie. Um, Yeah, I got the rights to her ex-husband. I got the rights to her daughter. I see. So, um, but you didn't get her rights. Like she was in jail. Well, I believe at the time it was a son of Sam situation where um, she wasn't allowed to give me her rights anyway. I believe. I see. And as long as I was able to record her, I was able to use it. So I would meet with her daughter on the weekends that her daughter was with her, and then while I was talking to the daughter, the mother would pipe in, and we were able to use all that. Does it matter that you got the rights? Like, I'm sure in the movie, I didn't see this particular movie, but I'm sure you said based on a true story. Do you think it would have subtracted from it if you didn't say based on a true story? I think so. And I think in that case, the truth of that story was better than any fiction anybody could could have created. I mean, that story, that movie is really worth watching. It's the positively true adventures of the alleged Texas cheerleader murdering mom. I, 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 you know, I, I think it's probably the longest title ever, but I, that, I think it won three Emmys. In fact, I know it won three Emmys, and it was a huge success. And it was a black comedy when nobody was doing black comedies. But again, it was HBO, and they just trusted us. Those guys were great. That was when Bob Cooper was running HBO. Uh, that's interesting. So that was HBO in like 1992, 93, when they were just starting probably their right, original movies. Right. But I remember learning a great deal from Bob Cooper and Lorette Hayden in particular. And in fact, Dennis Bishop, who was the head of physical production, they couldn't have been more kind and gracious to me because I had never done a movie before. And what did you learn uh, compared to uh, running plays for eight years? 
oh, well, I learned how a movie is made. They're too, I learned what a grip and a gaffer does. I didn't know <laughs> back in 92. So, so it's interesting. Again, it's like the intersection of various passions that lead to success. So you, you were into acting, then you were into playwriting, and then, of course, uh, developing a story for a movie becomes a completely different thing. But I'm sure all these prior things that you were successful at intersected to create a great movie. Well, they all do. I think everything, I think that's the way the world works. Everything is connected. And if, you, you know, if you're lucky enough to see the connections, then you, you know, you'll do a good job. So, so, you know, one interesting thing about a lot of these shows that you've worked on, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm going to throw in other shows like Mad Men and Breaking Bad and so on, is that unlike hour-long dramas that happened beforehand, there's a real arc to the story that occurs across multiple seasons. And you don't really see arcs in stories, you know, even in, you know, big hour-long dramas from the 80s like Hill Street Blues or whatever, you don't really see huge uh, story arcs that occur across seasons. W- what do you think changed there that allowed for that to happen? I, I'm not just sure I understand the question. Are you talking about the, the, the let's say, lead actor story arc? or Yeah, like like I could watch an episode in the third season of Hill Street Blues, and I won't feel like I missed that much. I just need to know who the characters are. No, because if- I, think, I think the truth of the matter is is that you know, at the end of the pilot episode, Tony Soprano was Tony Soprano. And I, after eight years, it's the same Tony Soprano. All that happens is that, you know, his life is, is burdened by more problems coming at him at a faster and more consequential rate. I mean, you know, to think that, you know, Tony Soprano is going to change over eight years and become something other, why would an audience member want to watch that? I mean, they're going to want to watch the guy that they know and invest in after a few episodes and go, okay, I dig this guy. This is the guy I want to watch. He's but, not going to change but that too much is my, the world around question. him, but the world around him will change. But, you know, that is my question, though, because it does seem like they do change in that, like, Dexter and Tony Soprano and, and a lot of these other characters seem to get more in touch with their feelings as the seasons go on and this actually becomes dangerous to them because they're not supposed to in their kind of traditional jobs or traditional roles they're not supposed they separate out the feelings from what they do i I think what you're raising is a very valid point i think that's true but that's not a a hugely dynamic change you know in the case of dexter you know the more human he became the tension would be you know whether or not he's going to sacrifice or abdicate his responsibility of taking out the really bad guys you know, become less sociopathic. So, yes, I think what you're saying is also true. Right, but even like Tony Soprano, too, the more he reveals to a therapist, for instance, or, mm-hmm. or whatever. Uh, he may lose touch he, with what he's supposed to be doing. I understand that. I just don't see that as a massive change in character. Right. Uh, you know, it, it, it's interesting, though, because like older shows, and let's just take as, a, as an iconic example from the 70s, Happy Days. You know, Richie Cunningham and the Fonz never change. Like they grow older, but they just don't change. Like, there's, sitcom, no, there's no additional that, layers to sit- their character. I appreciate that, but that's a sitcom, though. Happy Days, I don't remember. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's a, it's a sitcom. Right. Well, uh, okay, but even like Hill Street Blues, which I didn't watch as much, but the, the main characters didn't really change that much. I, I sort of feel like that started with The Sopranos, and then and then shows like like Dexter and so on. I suppose, I suppose. I mean, I, I know I remember watching Hill Street Blues a little bit and just being absolutely floored 
by the kind of dynamics that were going on with all those cops and their families. I mean, it was truly revolutionary when that show came out. Nobody had been as blunt about some of their flaws and virtues ever before, I think, on TV. Yeah, that's a good point. that's what I remember. it's, it's, It's almost the flaws that gave them the depth to draw stories around. And you don't you see that often in comedy. Comedy is often based around the flaws of the characters, but you don't see that as much in like a drama with the main character because usually the main character is a hero, but these were anti-heroes. Well, I think the misconception there is that the flaws aren't necessarily all that interesting. It's the it's the virtue of the character that's going to ultimately hurt him. So like if you are unfailingly honest, that honesty will ultimately become a tragic part of your character. If you are unfailingly, let's say, loyal, that ultimately usually will consequently cause you great tragedy in your life because of your loyalty. It's usually the virtues that we're trying to tap into that make the characters that much more compelling. So, so you know, it's also interesting. A lot of these kind of quote-unquote, let's say, bad characters like Tony Soprano or Dexter or whoever or Don Draper, they, they, you see flashbacks throughout the series that they suffered traumatic experiences when they were children. Do you think um, it's possible in general for people to overcome these early traumatic experiences? A lot of this trauma leads to the drama later. Uh, but do you think it's possible for them to overcome these early traumatic experiences? You mean in real life? Yeah. Yes, I do. And I, I, I think everybody does suffer, you know, certain tragedies in their lives as, as children or as young, young adults. I think it's just the nature of life. And I, I'd like to think that that's part of hope, you know, that you can get past those things. Not all of us have had great childhoods. I sure as heck didn't have the greatest childhood, although I would never change it for anybody else's. And how do you think you overcame um, early uh, experiences? Loving parents. So that's good. So, yeah, so I guess I was lucky. Now, now I kind of have – this is a totally naive question, but you're sitting down to write a TV script, and you, you, you have, like, the book or the guide or whatever it is for the series you're writing on. What's, what's the first thing do you think? Do you think, oh, I need three different storylines for three different characters, and what's the A story, B story, C story? What, what's the basic mechanics of writing a TV script? I, most of the stuff, uh, Dexter was the only thing I ever did that was based on somebody else's work. And uh, it doesn't work for me usually that way at all. And I, I, it, I, I don't mean to sound simplistic and or trite about this, but... It's hard to explain. I, I just might see two people and put them in a room, and then the next thing I know, I understand what they're fighting about, and then the next thing I know, I understand what the first, second, and third acts are. It's I, it's, it's hard to really pinpoint, and I'd rather not, but I, 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 I just see it, basically. Well, when you say you'd rather not, is that because you're afraid to kind of, like, put your uh, technique into a box? No, I'm afraid I'm going to sound like an idiot because I won't be able to articulate it correctly. <laughs> Uh, fair enough, fair enough. But okay, let, let's look at it in a specific example, like college. So obviously, someone, either you or David Chase, said, said uh, let's uh, let's let's get Tony out of New Jersey and set, have him send Meadow to college. Well, and that's then, an entirely different scenario, though, because you know I'm running a room right now. I'm working on a great show called South of Hell that's going to air on Wee TV. And, you know, right now we're in the process of we broke the first six stories. And that's a very collective environment, you know, where I'm working with six other writers, you know, coming up with what the beats of each individual story is going to be. So it's a very different environment than sitting down by yourself in front of a computer and coming up with a story. So, so what do you mean by the beats of a story? Like, how is everybody contributing to that? 
Well, in a traditional kind of story breakdown, you will have, you know, an A story, B, C, and a D story, and you crush them all together. And so it's just the issue of guiding what this overarching storyline is going to be and then trying to define what each episode will be to ultimately achieve to where you want to go in the first season. So, so, so again, like in college, um, you guys sat down with sort of the umbrella of what the idea would be about. And then did you start thinking, OK, how can we take this to a further extreme than we've done before? Or like, Yeah, pretty much. What's... I mean, again, it's, if you know the characters really well, then it, it doesn't become all that difficult and or complicated to reach the goal, your desired goal. And if you're under the guidance of somebody like a Dave Chase, who really had an extraordinarily brilliant handle on what he wanted that show to be, to say, to look and be, then, you know, it becomes a lot easier when you have that kind of, I guess, roadmap laid out before you. So, so you know, I sort of feel, again, like HBO almost created the genre of kind of the, the bad guy as, as hero, I'm going to call it, even though that's overly simplistic. But, you know, right now we're seeing... Uh, competition for content like everybody's watching YouTube kids are scrolling down their Facebook feeds Instagram feeds what do you see as kind of the future of uh, basically television or storytelling in general like what's what's next you know I really I don't know anything about technology in fact just yesterday I got rid of my iPhone and got uh, a very simple flip phone again because I I did not want to be inundated with emails all day long I I just can't handle that and I don't have a Facebook page and I think I just got a Twitter account because of this half hour animated show that I'm hoping to uh, get off the ground real soon called Jimmy Stones Um, I don't I cannot tell you you know how content is now going to be exploited I don't pay attention to it I don't intend to pay attention to it my job and my only goal is to come up with good stories so I you know wherever let's say whoever my producing partner is I would say that their job is to figure out where's the best place to exploit it I'll just come up with the stories I really do not think in those terms at all I see so whether it ends up on Netflix or Amazon Studios or Showtime doesn't matter to you you're going to create the story I, I think anybody who's lucky enough to come up with a good enough story to air on any medium is doing a good job now, let, let me ask you, like, uh, obviously, you, you said I really enjoy uh, spending, you know, working with people that I enjoy spending time with. This yes. occurred most of all on Dexter, it seems, because you married one of the stars of or, or you're, you're partnered with one of the stars of Dexter, Lauren Velez. Uh, if you don't mind saying, how did that kind of come about? Did that feel a little awkward? No, that was probably the most magical moment in my life. And I'm just fortunate to work out. I'm just really fortunate that she had the same attraction as I did. So, like, that's, did you make the first move? <laughs> I'll leave it at that. Uh, all right, fair enough. Um, you know, you. It sounds to me like you basically, from the time you left college to now, you're basically doing what you've wanted to do all your life. Um, like you said with Warren Beatty's advice, you know, uh, if, if work is Which like I only pleasure, heard, it's not I only work. heard his. I, I, I don't want to pretend that I know Warren. I don't. I was fortunate enough to meet him. Actually, I think he was in the bathroom once, but um, <laughs> or outside the bathroom at one of those uh, red carpet events. I would love to have really gotten the chance to talk to him. I heard that as one of his quotes. So I, I don't want to pretend to the audience that I, I know him. Well, okay. Aside from that, though, but how would you recommend people find their passion? Like many people now are sort of stuck. Like they they signed up for law school, then the cubicle job, and then they realize, you know what? This is not really what I wanted to do. They made a mistake. And how would you recommend people? That's a very funny question to me because I did get I did have a I did graduate college 
knowing that I loved theater because I had gotten involved in theater during college and got an opportunity to study in London for a little while. But I did, of course, feel compelled to get a square job, and I did. And I got a job in a small boutique advertising agency in New York City, and it was it was a media planner, and I, I'm a mathematical idiot, and I was trying to figure out how to figure out what's the best buck for putting you know an ad about Glenn Livid and which magazines, whatever the job was. And I, I just I remember my boss. His name was Alan. I don't remember his last name, but I will always remember him till the day I die because I remember. I think after three months, he pulled me in. He said, "Do you really like what you're doing?" And I said, I think so. And he said, well, why don't you take off a week or two and I'll pay you for it and think about it, whether or not this is really what you want to do in your life. I, I'll never forget that. And, of course, I took off for a week or two and I came back and I went, you're right. I don't think I should be here. And it, that really gave me the freedom to go ahead and keep doing what I really wanted to do, which was at that time directing plays. Well, that seems like actually a great form of leadership that this guy kind of recognized that in you and then let you take some time off which he paid for and then you left him like there was no real benefit to him to do that and yet why he did it i would say there is a great benefit to being that gracious and that kind of understanding of another human being i would say that benefits him as much as it benefits me i mean god bless that guy i would say he did something of great service to the world I really think I have a special place in my heart for that guy. I wish I'd talk to him one day soon. I'd like to track him down. Yeah, you should, because it, cha- it changed the whole direction of, of everyone's life. So so how, how do you see statement. it affecting your own style of leadership? Like, you lead a room of writers. What, what do you? How do you see yourself uh, as a I'm leader? I'm entirely transparent. I mean, I have a staff. They all know what's going on. I'm very close to my assistants, who are great. You know, I'm working with a great guy, Trevor Silverstein and Spencer Kennard. Those are my two right-hand men right here um, in my office. And as long as I feel that they, that I'm open with them and that they know good, bad, and indifferent what's happening on the show, we're all collectively trying to achieve the same thing. And if you can, if you can create that environment, then hopefully the show that we're working on right now, South of Hell, will be as successful as we hope it to be. Uh, tell me about South of Hell. I, I, I don't know that one. Um, like, what, what's it well, about? I can't talk too much about it, but it, it does have to do with, um, you know, the world of demonology and God and devils. It's fascinating, actually. I'm does really it actually get into, uh, are, are they real people, or, or you get into kind of mystical stuff? Um, you know, I would argue probably that everybody's got a touch of the devil in them. So, yeah, I would say it's pretty grounded. So it's funny because, again... I'm thinking Sopranos, I'm thinking Dexter, and I'm thinking The Shield. They all have the touch of the devil in them. And at well, the same so time, so they're, putting, they're tucking their kids into sleep. Well, I think everybody does have a bit of a devil in them. I mean, not everybody's flawless. I mean, you know, I mean, that, that's what makes, you know, I think the world interesting. I mean, even the new show that I've created that um, is about to be launched, Jimmy Stones. You know, that that guy's a particularly flawed guy, and um, I think you're going to find him awful compelling because he decides to check out of this world and no longer be responsible to himself or anybody else. And the whole hook behind that show is that the animals in New York City, you know, start talking to him and start saying, hey, be a man, do the right thing. And Jimmy's reaction is, it's too damn hard. And the truth of the matter is that it is really hard to make the right choices all the time goes all the way back to that Robert Frost poem, you know, when he was walking down the road, and I can't remember the actual poem, but, you know, when he decided to go one way and not the other way. Not that easy. what are some of the decisions Jimmy Stones has to encounter? Well, Jimmy Stones has been burdened by enormous amount of debt, 
some self-imposed, others imposed upon him. And it gets so outrageously, I think, what's the word I'm looking for, so outrageously um, out of control and, and such an incredible burden uh, that it's almost not worth living. And yet he still manages to live. He just decides to live under his own terms. And it really is saying to the whole world it doesn't really work that well that way. Like living on your own terms, like does he go homeless or what happens? He decides after a wickedly bad divorce, as all divorces are wickedly bad, that um, he no longer feels compelled and or responsible to have to pay the ten grand a month to his ex-wife. And that at a certain point, when you owe your ex-wife, let's say, ten grand a month, and you owe the government and back taxes, and you owe hospitals because you didn't have Obamacare, and you owe college loans because jobs never pay what you think they're going to pay, and when you have personal debts and all, at a certain point, you know, you could be working and make ten cents on a dollar. What is the point? What is the point? And that's Jimmy's, that's Jimmy's argument. Not one that I actually believe in, but certainly one that I know many people would. And it's the animals. The irony here is that the animals are trying to teach him to become a better human being than, than he is. And where's that show going to appear? It sounds great. We don't know. I think we, we're doing a uh, crowd tilt um, campaign right now on it and well, hoping to raise uh, quite a few bucks because animation is fairly expensive. But it's an incredibly funny black comedy, and it's a particularly blunt look at, at, at the world. So that's funny, though. That, that is a way to use technology, which is essentially you're, you're crowdsourcing the, the production yeah, costs. Yeah, but you see, I never would have thought of that. It's, a, it's a, almost a new of, way of creating correct. content. That's correct, and it's fascinating to me because I knew nothing about it. My producing partner, who's unbelievably savvy to the world of technology, was the one that said, well, let's do this crowd-till program and get all these other, I guess, Internet um, or te technological kind of um, expressions or other ways to exploit it all together. And it's become this really large campaign, which to me, I'm fascinated. I, I have to keep coming up with lines and bits and stuff to keep adding to the crowd tilt. That I can do. But to actually put it all together, or even think that could be all put together, I never would have thought of. Bill Schultz, my producing partner, is absolutely brilliant. Not only just a creative guy, but also has the foresight and the understanding and knowledge of how all this stuff interfaces and how it all interreacts between Twitter and Facebook and CrowdTilt and, and uh, what's the other media, um, uh, Film Break and, and all these Mondo. They're all somehow connected, and it's just remarkable to me. I'm hoping that we get the amount of money that we need to produce we were hoping to produce, I believe, like 10 or 15 three-minute webisodes and go from there. Oh, that's interesting. That's almost like where you could release on YouTube or uh, – Correct. You know, Correct. I guess that would be the goal. I'm not real sure. But, you know, I, I, it's a fascinating story because it is a view of the world told from, different, from a very different perspective. And I think everybody in the world would understand Jimmy Stones because everybody in the world would love to just be able to check out and lie on the couch and do nothing all day other than drink and smoke cigarettes. Well, it, it seems, again, like – this sort of uh, contradiction of personalities happens through all of your main characters where there's like kind of a dark side and there's sort of like a good side where, you know, and it's a battle between them throughout the arc of the series. And, and again, honest. I wonder if people relate to that because we all feel that. I, I think that's honest. I think everybody is that way, really. I mean, I think everybody's got that. Like I said earlier, the duality, you know, everybody's got the good and the bad. We all make mistakes, you know, which we didn't, but we do. But I think, and so, by, oh. by and large, I have a lot of hope in humanity because, or at least here in the States, you know, I mean, I, well, I, should, I should be careful here. Um, I'd like to think people will ultimately do the right thing. Why do you have to be careful saying that? 
you know, I, I just, like I said, I absolutely am somewhat perpetually optimistic about the human condition at the end of the day. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, Given the shows, I I believe I believe it, and I think that's what comes through in the shows is that ultimately these people want to do right by everyone in their lives. They're just kind of in these situations where they feel uh, other other people and other factors are kind of compelling their dark side to come it, out. It's absolutely true. It's Jimmy Stone's clarion call. It's just too damn hard, and that's and what he says all the time. Where's uh, Sons of Hell uh, coming out? It's South of Hell. South of Hell. And that's going to be airing on WeTV, and I do not know when the uh, the air dates are. And so right now you're involved, like, in a whole bunch of shows, not just one. You have, like, writers well, all around priority, you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, I think, I think it's true to say that anybody in the situation that I'm in right now always is working on a few other projects when they can find the time. I mean, running the show is an exhausting unbelievably um in some ways even fatiguing but at the same time absolutely invigorating and and transcendently kind of exciting so it's hard to sometimes work on other projects but you're kind of compelled to it's so difficult to get anything on the air these days that it's incumbent upon any artist to try to keep you know having other projects available if you could if you could kind of think of and this is this is hard and almost and simplistic at the same time but if you could think of one sort of guiding principle that has led to your success, what do you think it would be? I, I would have to say being true to what I think the correct story is and being true to those characters that I that pop into my head or the characters that I confront in real life that I ultimately will write about. By being true, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, write, I don't write anything under the guise of knowing what the zeitgeist of this world is or what the world would want. I just write what I want to write about. I, I see. So I you're sort of being and honest say, internally. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not going to run around and try to pitch a story that I think, oh, wow, wow, 80% of the people in the newspapers are talking about this thing, and I, I just don't think like that. Okay, well, you, what's what's coming up next? Is there anything, you know, that's so, sort of close to, to coming out there that you would like to uh, mention well, or yeah, promote? Yeah, I mean, certainly South of Hell. Like I said, you know, we've broken the first six stories, and it's an eight-episode uh, commitment, and certainly Jimmy Stone's. So, you know, there's a couple of other projects out there, but those are the two most important. And certainly, you know, this whole crowd tilt campaign that Trevor and, and Spencer are, are working with Bill Schultz, my, my incredible producer uh, of animation, you know, trying to get that program going. So, yeah, that's kind and of exciting to us. So if people search on Jimmy Stones, they'll find the, the crowd tilt campaign? I, I think if they go to JimmyStonesTV.com, They'll start seeing, I think the thing is being launched this week or maybe Monday or Tuesday. So, yeah, they'll, they'll, I'd love them to get on it and take a look at how crazy that story is. It's funny. I, I can't wait for that to come out. And, and when you say it's funny, is there a little more comedic element than your other shows? The shows yeah, the yeah. I mean, this is a half-hour black comedy about a guy that just wants, like I said, just wants to kind of fall into a blissful ob oblivion of Bushmills, scotch, and cigarettes and you know, and, and not do anything. Um, so, yeah, that's, and the, like I said, the animals are all, I think, equally compelling in a lot of ways because the, all these animals that talk to him kind of reverse, I guess, Dr. Doolittle or, um, yeah, Dr. Doolittle. Um, they are all, they all have the same human conditions, you know, the, like Tony the dog wanted to be a jeweler, but he can't because he's got paws. It's hard for a dog to make jewelry with paws. Well, so also, they, it, they all it, have the human condition, you know. 
Also, in New York, you have more rats than humans, so it's probably some rats. Uh, yeah, you know, I'm not so sure about that. But, I, mean, <laughs> I think uh, maybe, but there are certainly, you know, everything from falcons to squirrels to coyotes, everything, deer, everything come, pops into Central Park. It's pretty amazing. That's true. Yeah. So, so what turns what turns a black drama into a black comedy? What 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 what's the switch that you flip to make something into a co- a comedy? You mean a drama to a black comedy is 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 what I think you're asking me. I yes. I think if if you can make people laugh in situations in which you wouldn't expect to be laughing, that's a black comedy. Like what's an example? You know, off the top of my head, I've got so many swimming in my head right now, I can't think of one. But, I mean, there's a, I, I, you know, I don't know, Gross Point Blank is a great black comedy to me. Huh. You know, All right. That, to me, was a really brilliant black comedy. But, you know, I, I probably, it's not the best example. But I. Okay, well, so Jimmy Stone's uh, crowd-tilting campaign, uh, this podcast will probably come out around the same time as well, you're launching right. that uh, crowd crowdsourcing campaign. So I hope everybody goes to it. I can't wait to see the show. It sounds great. No, I really appreciate that. I hope everybody does go to it, and I hope everybody, you know, ultimately next year sometime um, will be watching South of Hell on WeTV, who've been also great to work with. Okay, that's great. And, and Jim, thanks so much for, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jim. Bye. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Becoming your strongest financial self? Good plan. Northwestern Mutual's Guide to Good Financial Planning can help you balance spending and saving, set goals, and start creating the life you want to be living. Get it today at northwesternmutual.com slash goodplan. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin.